This morning I'd like to speak to you about God being the author of many books. The author of many books. I'd like to begin with this book. This book is commonly called the good book. And it is a good book, isn't it? This book called the good book has 66 books within it. We have a major division and we have 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 over here in the New. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture, that's all 66 books under consideration. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, which means God breathed. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Even those genealogies are profitable, trust me. All scriptures given the inspiration of God is profitable for what? For doctrine, for correction, for rebuke, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, that is, mature and complete. It's a thorough furnisher to all good works. It's complete. It's, it's a thorough furnisher. There's no way you could possibly improve God's word. You couldn't add to it or take away from it. In fact, there are stern warnings in the scriptures about doing such things. So this book is divinely inspired. Now in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19, 20, and 21, Peter expresses the same thing a little bit different way. He says that no prophecies have any private interpretation, which simply means when men wrote the scripture, they were not writing their opinions. They were not writing just their own thoughts and considerations of things. No scriptures of any private interpretation. It says, we have a more sure word of prophecy. Now, that's a statement in contrast to an experience Peter, James, and John had with the Lord on the mountain of transfiguration. That was a real experience. But he says, we have a more sure word of prophecy, that you would do well that you take heed as into a bright light in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star appear or rise in your hearts. Notice that you do well to do what? To take heed to this word. It's like a light in a dark place, you see. For no prophecy is any private, again, interpretation, but holy men of old spake, for the prophecy came in old time, as holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And that expression, they were moved by the Holy Ghost, as it's a picture of that like a ship a sa uh, uh, that has sails and the ship is on the sea and the ship moves upon the sea as the wind blows through the sails. That's what he's saying there. So we believe that the scriptures are given to us by inspiration of God and therefore it makes them infallible. It makes them without error. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul told Timothy to study to show himself approved unto God a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The expression word of truth is another expression for the Bible, that is, for the scriptures themselves. Notice Paul told Timothy not to divide truth from error, because there's no error to divide truth from. It's all truth, but it's a special, unique book, the way it's written, the way it's recorded. It has to be read in a very serious manner, a very prayerful manner. And Paul tells Timothy he's to do this, to show himself approved, first of all, unto God, a workman, uh, it's a lot of work to do this, a workman that needed not be ashamed, but rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, when the word of God is not rightly divided, that means people take verses out of context. They don't study the context which the verse is in, and therefore they give it their own interpretation, and that's not the way you do it. You have to compare scripture with scripture. You have to study the context, the verses above it, the verses below it, the chapter, the book, the entire book at times. In fact, any subject you're studying, you should not come to a conclusion until you see exactly what the entire Bible has to say about it. So this book is given to us as special and it's very unique. And I try to encourage you, as you well know, to read the scriptures through every single year. One of the most important things I ever did in my life over 40-some years ago was to make a commitment to read the Bible from cover to cover every single year. And I've done that for the last 43 years. It's one of the most important things I ever did. And you don't have to be a preacher to have that type of commitment. I don't mind telling you, telling on Karen. She's read it over 30 times. 
My wife has read the Bible from cover to cover over 30 times in her lifetime. She had read it 43, but she, I got a jump start on her. But anyway, we not only believe it's given divine inspiration, but we believe we have it today by divine preservation. Psalms 12 and 6 and 7 says, For the words of the Lord are pure words. Notice it's pure words. As silver uh, that's tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Now you take silver, and to begin with, it has dross on it. For it to be pure, it has to be purified in a furnace. And seven's the number of completion. As silver is purified in uh, a furnace of fire seven times, it says, so the word of God. Now the word of God didn't, has never been impure. He's not saying that's the way it, he's giving you a comparison. He's just saying, as that silver now is completely pure, so is the word of God. For the word of God is pure. As silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times, so shalt thou keep them. Talking about God. So shalt thou keep them from this generation forever. Now let's just think about it. what good would it have done for God to have had his word inspired and recorded in the very beginning, and it be pure then, but only for a short period of time. As time would go on and translations would be made and copies would be made and one thing and another and the word of God translated into different languages and then some of the word of God would be lost and other words would be placed in there it shouldn't be placed in there and over time error would creep in one thing and another then the word of God would only have been profitable for people in the first few years after it was given by an inspiration. If we cannot believe that God has preserved his word through his providence and power for nearly 2,000 years, then I would not be able to preach with conviction there's going to be an end of time in the second coming of Christ and a resurrection. I only preach that because this word says it. This word teaches it. This word declares that. So I can declare it to you because I know the word is pure. I know the word is true. I know the word is inspired. I know the word is incorruptible. I know the word is without error. I know the word has been preserved. And we have it here for us in the year of 2023. Let me just give you an interesting fact. When the King James translation was translated in 1611, now it's 66 books, there's 1189 chapters, and there's over 783,000 words in this book. Remember that number, 783,000 plus words in this book. The new King James came out. You know how many words in that one? 770 some thousand words. In other words, the new King James took over 12,000 words out of the original King James. 12,000 words it took it out. But it gets better. The ESV, which is one of the most popular translations out there now, the English Standard Version, it took over 25,000 words out. It has 757,000 plus words in it. In other words, when you read that, you're missing over 25,000 words. Wonder why they felt like they were so qualified to take those words out. And the NIV is the worst of all. The NIV, which got very popular many years ago, it has a little over 727,000 words in it, which means it took over 50,000 words out of the KJV. Now, wonder what made them think they were so wise, so smart, that they could take out over 50,000 words out of the Word of God itself and still call what they did the Word of God. I think that's very noteworthy. So we believe the Scriptures are God's books, 66 books, that make up the Word of God, having divine inspiration, divine preservation. The Lord Jesus Christ, in Sermon on the Mount, said in Matthew 5, 17 and 18, He says, Think not I've come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. Now, to fulfill the law means that there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, and Christ came to fulfill every single one of them exactly like the prophets wrote. He said, until heaven and earth pass. Now, heaven and earth will pass one day, but till heaven and earth pass, not one jot nor one tittle of the law in any wise shall pass till all be fulfilled. Now, a jot is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's the ninth letter. It's the smallest letter. And tittle is a punctuation mark. Usually, some of the letters are very similar, but above the letters would be little bitty marks up there to distinguish one letter from another. 
He says, not one jot nor one tittle shall in any wise pass away till all these things be fulfilled. It's just marvelous. When you look back, well over a thousand years, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, things were stated that came to pass exactly like they were stated in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. Read Psalm 22. It's a messianic psalm. And you'll find things actually concerning the suffering Christ in Psalms 22 that you won't even find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The very life of the sufferings of Christ. Read Isaiah chapter 53. Same thing. I mean, it's almost like chapter 53 doesn't belong in Isaiah. It belongs somewhere over here, maybe in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John one in the New Testament day over here. It's so clear. How could Isaiah know these things? You know, Isaiah 9, 6, unless a child is born, unless a son is given, the government should be upon his shoulders. His name should be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. That's the prophecy of Christ, 7, Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. And I shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew 1, 23 says that was literally fulfilled in the day of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I can go on and on and on about this. I'm just telling you, there's not just one, 10, 20, or 30 prophecies. There's hundreds and hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that were literally fulfilled to a jot and to a tittle. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus said, Heaven and earth shall pass away. All right, it shall pass away. Now, man talks about man destroying this earth. Man abuses this earth, man misuses this earth, and all the blessings that God has given us in the work of creation, but he will never destroy it. God will do that. It will be destroyed, but not by man. God will take care of that. Second Peter chapter 3 describes that very clearly to us. But Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. There's something that will not pass away. It doesn't matter how much time goes on. His words will not pass away. These are God's words. God's the author of them. He used over 40 men over a span of time of 1,500 years to pin down the words that we have in the Word of God today, the Bible, the Scriptures. But God is the author. One mind, many human writers. But remember, no prophecy of the Scriptures any private interpretation. That means Paul didn't write by speculation or imagination. (laughs) And Peter didn't come along and write his own thoughts. You've got Peter's thoughts and Paul's thoughts. No, they're not their thoughts. They're the words that were pinned down by these men that God gave them. But divine inspiration, we have again a divine preservation. So we have those books. Now we come to the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 16. It says, they that fear the Lord spake often one to another. Now, notice who's on consideration. They that fear the Lord. Does the natural man fear the Lord? He does not. Does the unregenerated man uh, fear the Lord? He does not. The word fear means with utmost respect. It means with reverence. They that fear the Lord spake how often? It doesn't say, but it says often one to another. Now, the one to another involves those who fear the Lord. If I fear the Lord and you fear the Lord, we ought to talk a lot with each other. And he's not talking about sports and politics and one thing and another. He's talking about the things of God. Just like Mary and Elizabeth did. When Mary was carrying Jesus Christ and Elizabeth was carrying John the Baptist, they met up in the hill country for about three months there before John the Baptist was born. Don't you know they had a lot of wonderful conversation? Both of them are going to bring forth miraculous children. Children by prophecy. And so they spake often with each other. They that fear the Lord. The Bible always identifies who they're talking about. They that fear the Lord spake often, not just every now and then, but often one to another. That gets us into to fellowship, doesn't it? But the fellowship centers around the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They that fear the Lord spake often one to another. And the Lord hearkened. Notice it. The Lord hearkened and heard, and a book of remembrance was written on behalf of those who thought upon his name, who feared his name, and thought upon his name. Then we got another book. It's called the book of remembrance. You think God needed help in writing it down? You go to the grocery store, you forget your grocery list. You bring back about half what you wanted to get. Or you forgot to write something down. That's the way man handles things. 
You think God had to write something down and remember anything? Of course he did not. But God has his word written so we can comprehend, we can understand. He comes down to our level, doesn't he? They that fear the Lord spake often one to another. And God hearkened and heard. And a book of remembrance was written on behalf of them that fear the Lord and thought on his name. Now, God remembers all things. God has never been taught anything. He's never forgotten anything. He's never learned anything. But a book of remembrance showing how much God cares for you, how much God loves you. That's why we have scriptures like the Lord said, uh, that God knows the very number of the hair of your head. A, a sparrow shall not fall to the ground without, without God, without the Father. That is without the knowledge of the Father. Can you imagine that? A bird falls to the ground for whatever reason. In the middle of the forest, nobody sees it, but God does. No sparrow falls to the ground without God's knowledge. There's not a, 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 I don't care how few or how many hairs you have on your head, God has known how many you've had every single day of your life. It shows his intimate concern with you. So a book of remembrance was written on your behalf, but it's on behalf of those who fear the Lord and thought on his name. How often do you think on the name of Jesus? Oh, when I think of the name of Jesus, it automatically produces wonderful thoughts. So if you won't have some good thoughts and positive thoughts and wonderful thoughts, just think on the name Jesus. There will not be one negative thought that pop into your mind when you consider the name Jesus. The word Jesus literally means salvation. The word Jesus literally means Savior. Jehovah is salvation. God gave him that name. That's when we pray, we pray in his name, do we not? When, we had, when Mark prayed the public prayer, did he not in the prayer with the name of Jesus Christ we pray? Why would we say that? When I baptize, I baptize in the name of the Father, and the, name of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Why do I baptize in the three-in-one Godhead, in the name of the three-in-one Godhead? Because... When you're baptized, you're symbolizing the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you properly understand, have the proper motive of what the Bible teaches, you're being baptized in the name of the Father that foreknew you and chose you and loved you and elected you and predestinated you to be conformed to the image of His Son. And you're baptized in the name, the second person of the Godhead, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved you so great He left heaven's pure world and came here into this earth and lived for 33 and a half years, he ended up going to the cross, to, to Calvary, and took your sins, his own body, to the tree of the cross, and put them away as far as the east is from the west, so one day you could live with him in heaven. Outside of that, you would never live with him in heaven. You'd die in a burning hell, separated from God. But God delivered you by sending his son into this world. That's why we baptize in his name. You ever think about his name? We baptize in the name of the Holy Spirit. That sometime in your lifetime it came to you when you were not looking for it, wasn't asking for it, wasn't seeking for it, and borns you the Spirit of God because you happen to be one of God's children that He foreknew you and chose, and elected, and predestinated once again. You were one of God's objects of His love. At His own appointed time, the Spirit came down, touched your heart, changed your heart, raised you from a state of death and sin to a state of life in Jesus Christ. So we baptize in His name. I'd say that's a worthy name, wouldn't you? The name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Spirit. We preach in His name, we baptize in His name, pray in His name, sing in His name. His name's important, isn't it? So they that fear the Lord spake often one to another. And God heard and God hearkened. I love that. That's like Peter says, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. And his ears are open unto their cries. So God wrote a book of remembrance as he took notice of those under consideration. Psalms 56, 8, David writes. David says, Thou tellest my wanderings. The word tell means to count, like a teller in a bank. A teller counts money. We read in the Psalms where it says, For God telleth the number of the stars. God knows exactly how many stars are in the universe. And he calleth all of them, what? By name. <laughs> he knows how many they are, and he calls them all by name. Now, man's given a name to some of the stars, <laughs> but nowhere near all of them, but God does. 
He says, thou tellest my wanderings. That means my journey, my earthly journey. In other words, God was watching over David when he was a little shepherd boy on the hillsides of Bethlehem, watching over his father's sheep. He was watching over David when he went out and fought against Goliath. He was watching over David when as that shepherd boy, he delivered a lamb out of the mouth of a lion and a bear. He watched over that shepherd boy when he went out and done battle against the Philistines. He, yes, thou tellest my wanderings. There was never a place where David's foot tread the soil of this earth that Almighty God didn't see it and know all about it. Thou tellest my wanderings. But the hymn writer says that life is a mixture of what? Joy and sorrow, right? Of joy and sorrow. Some of the steps David took were steps of joy. Some of the steps that David took were steps of sorrow. So here's what else he says. He says, thou, put thou my tears in thy bottle. Are they not written in thy book? Are they not written in thy book? I think this is the book of his remembrance, the book of his providence, the book of his promises. Why did David ask him to put his tears? Whose tears? It's David's tears. There were times that David wept. Put thou my tears in thy bottle. God has a container referred to as a bottle where the tears of his saints go into that bottle. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of God's care and concern for you, is it not? The apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. David says, put thou my tears in thy bottle. Are they not written in thy book? Whose book? God's book. Are they not written in thy book? That's a question with an implied answer, isn't it? Yes, they're written in his book. So a book of remembrance was written. Here, the Lord is teaching us his concern, his care, his compassion, his love for you in every stage of life, everywhere you walk, everywhere you go. There's not a place you go that God doesn't see and God doesn't know. And all the tears that are shed here in this world Shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35. What is it? Don't tell me you don't know. <laughs> Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. By the way, the longest verse in the Bible is Esther, chapter 8, verse 9, uh, the 8th chapter in the book of Esther. Okay? Jesus wept. Tears flowed. There were tears that flowed from the woman's eyes in Luke chapter 7 when she came behind the Lord Jesus Christ and she wept so much that she washed his feet with the tears that came from her eyes. Those tears had been put into the bottle of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 4, Paul says to the young minister Timothy, I've been mindful of thy tears. When you study the life of Timothy, you'll find that Timothy... Uh, was a little bit on the sickly side. Remember Paul told Timothy, drink no longer water for thy stomach's sake, and often infirmities, not some, but often infirmities, and drink a little wine for thy stomach's sake. Not a lot, but a little bit to help you. Drink a little wine for thy stomach's sake, and often infirmities. Timothy had tears. Paul was mindful of them. I look in Acts chapter 20. Tears are mentioned three times in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, Paul gathers the elders of Ephesus together. And he tells them to take heed unto the flock which the Holy Ghost had made them the overseers of, to feed the flock of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. He says, you know how I was among you. I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you. I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. And I was with you at all seasons, and I came with you, I came in your midst with great humility and tears. Paul was a man who didn't mind telling people that he cried. He shed tears. He loved the Lord's people greatly. And then a little bit later on, you're going to find where Paul, again, mentions about his tears for his people. And we come to the end of the chapter. And as Paul is about to leave, he's about to depart there on the seashore. And it says the people came and they fell upon his neck and they wept sore. They didn't want him to leave. They didn't want to see him leave because the Bible says he would see their faces no more. It was a time of weeping. Time of weeping. Jeremiah is referred to what? As the weeping prophet. So he says, Lord, thou tellest my wanderings. 
put thou my tears in thy bottle. Are they not written in thy book? Aren't you glad a tear doesn't fall from your eye, off your cheek, that God doesn't see, and collects and puts it into his bottle? It's written in his book. 32nd chapter of Exodus. There's a passage here I want to get to that sometimes people read and because they're unfounded on the doctrine of eternal security and the final preservation of the saints, it causes them to wonder about that. Now let's, let's get into this. To understand what I'm about to preach unto you, you really need to study the entire 32nd chapter of Exodus. And you need to study the life of Moses. See, who was Moses anyway? Moses was a man that had a miraculous preservation as a little baby. Remember that? When he was born, there was a decree of Pharaoh that all the male children should be drowned in the, in the river. And he was born and was hid three months. And after three months, when he could no longer be hid, his mother puts him in a little ark of, of bulrushes into the river. Pharaoh's daughter sees him. Sends the maidens down there to get him, brings him out. She said, this is a Hebrew child here. If she follows her father's decree, she would have drowned him right on the spot. But there was a tear that came out of the eye of Moses. A tear again, mind you. That came from the eye of this little baby boy at three months old. She had compassion on him. And she's going to raise that little child. She's going to adopt that little child and raise him up in the palace there in Egypt. Moses was called of God to be a deliverer of his people. And he made that known when he was 40 years, excuse me, when he was 80 years old on the backside of the desert. He'd been keeping sheep for 40 years. He spent the first 40 in Egypt, the next 40 in the backside of the desert. And God appears to him at the age of 80 and commissions him to go back down to Egypt and bring his people out of there. In other words, Moses called to be a deliverer of his people. Now, when you study the life of Moses, you're going to study one of the strongest types of the Lord Jesus Christ of any Old Testament character. That's why I'm trying to encourage you about this or to emphasize this. He was a deliverer. But the type is never as great as the one the type is of. He was a deliverer of a nation of people, and when he brought Israel out of the land of Egypt, he brought them out across the Red Sea, dry shod, didn't leave one behind. He brought out the entire nation without the loss of one. Does that remind you of somebody? Does that remind you of a greater deliverer named the Lord Jesus Christ who delivered you from so great a death? And he didn't just deliver a nation. He delivered a people out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation, his elect family, my friends. He delivered every single one of them from the penalty of sin without the loss of one. Moses would become a mediator between God and, and the nation of Israel. He would make intercession for them. Well, we have one mediator between God and men. Paul writes to Timothy. He says we have one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now, Moses would have to go on top of the mountain to mediate between God the Father and the nation of Israel. The Lord Jesus Christ, after his resurrection, after spending 40 days on this earth, he ascended from this earth right into heaven, and he's on the right hand of God perpetually. He's there all, uh, all the time. There's never been a time since that time he's not been on the right hand of the majesty on high, making intercession for the people of God. In the book of Romans chapter 8, there are seven questions that's important that you read and get the answers to. And what I like about the questions of the Bible, generally speaking, the answer is right below it. So he asked this question, who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. Who is he that condemneth? It's Christ that died, yea, rather is risen, who's on the right hand of God doing what? Making intercession for the saints. Moses is always making intercession. All right, now, when you study Exodus chapter 32, what do we have? We have Moses at the end of chapter 31 going on top of a mountain to receive the law. The two tables of stone, the Ten Commandments, and also instructions how to build the tabernacle, etc. While he's up there, the people get impatient. And somebody amongst the people says, we know not where Moses is or when he's coming back, basically. Therefore, speaking unto Moses, I mean unto Aaron, uh, we know not about this man named Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt. Whoa, wait a minute. Who brought who out of the land of Egypt? 
Did Moses bring them out? He had to be brought out of Egypt just like they did. Yes, he's the leader of the people, and he was a deliverer, but it was God who brought them out of that land of Egypt. Now they didn't took their eyes off God, they put it squarely on Moses. And so they asked Aaron to make them a golden calf. So he told them to take the earrings out of your wives, your sons, and your daughters. And he brought them unto Moses. And he fashioned it, put it together, fashioned it all together, and made a golden calf. And they fell down and started worshiping this golden calf. Can you imagine that? It's hard to believe, hard to comprehend how people who had just come out of Egyptian bondage saw the ten plagues, saw the Red Sea part wide open, cross dry shod, saw the uh, army of Pharaoh all drowned in the Red Sea, and just a short time later on, they're dancing around a golden calf. The Lord comes to Moses. He says, the people have corrupted themselves. He says, they've turned out of the way that I led them when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. He says, my anger has waxed hot. I'm going to consume them. I'm going to consume them. And I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Moses didn't ask for that. Moses didn't want that. Moses pleaded with the Lord on behalf of the Israelites. He said, let not thy anger wax hot, O Lord. He says, but remember Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the covenant you made with them. And if you destroy them, the people in Egypt are just going to say you brought them out only to destroy them in the wilderness. So don't do it, Lord. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, what Moses here, he's pleading with the Father based upon the promises of the Father. The statements that the Father has made. Hey, when you pray, it's nothing wrong with you claiming the promises of God. It's not, letting, it's not informing God about anything. It's just letting God know that you hadn't forgotten. You're not trying to remind God not to forget it. You're letting him know you hadn't forgot him. So when I pray to God, I can pray like this, Lord, you have promised not to leave me nor forsake me. Am I reminding God of anything? No, I'm not. But I'm letting God know I know that. You promised never to leave me nor forsake me. You've promised to be with thee in the six troubles and the seventh no evil shall touch me. Nothing wrong with mentioning and and talking about the promises of God when you pray to the Father. That's exactly what Moses is doing right here. Remember the covenant promise you made to Abraham, Reed and Isaac, and then to Jacob. You've got a people here. And the Bible says that God listened and didn't destroy them. Moses comes down the mountain. Joshua's with him. Joshua says, I hear the noise of war. <laughs> Moses says, I don't hear the noise of war. I hear the noise of singing. They made that golden calf. It says they ate and they drank and they rose up to play. When Moses got down and saw what they were doing, his anger waxed hot. And he called Aaron on the carpet for it. And Aaron tried to blame the people for it. He said, you know how the people are. You know the mystery to the people. And I did all this and all of a sudden a golden calf just hopped right out of the fire. I tell you, when you get caught, when you get called on the carpet, you're just liable to come up with anything. You're just grasping for straws, so to speak. That's what Aaron was doing. Then Moses said, who's on the Lord's side? Here's an opportunity for repentance. Here's an opportunity for the people to turn. But the only people responding was the people of the tribe of Levi. And God told them, he says, put a sword by your side and go in among the people and slay them. And they slew 3,000 on that occasion. And you'll find this expression used three times in this chapter that they had committed a great sin. Somebody says, are there some sins worse than other sins? Well, I tell you this, I'd rather be guilty of lying than guilty of killing somebody. I'll put it that way. But James tells us if you're guilty of one point in breaking the law, you're guilty of all. And here, God says they have committed a great sin. And then Moses speaks to them. He says, you have committed a great sin. Not a sin, but a great sin. He said, but peradventure, I will go and plead on your behalf and try to make an atonement for you. Now, we're leading up to what I want. I'll make an atonement for you. He went up to God. He said, God, he says, the people have committed a great sin the third time. The people have committed a great sin. But he says, forgive them 
But if not, then blot me out of thy book, the book of the living. This is not the Lamb's book of life, my friends. This is not the Lamb's book of life. If you understand the truth of the doctrine of eternal security and the preservation of saints, you know this is not the book of life. Here's what Moses is saying. He's saying, Lord, I love this people so much. If you will not forgive them, then block me out of the land of the living. It's just like Paul in Romans chapter 9. He says, I've been made a curse for Christ's sake. He loved the Jewish people so much. He's willing to take their place. He'd be willing to take their plight, their condition by rejecting Christ if they would repent and understand and recognize Jesus as the promised Messiah. He's willing to switch places with them. That's how much he loved them. And this is how much Moses loved the Israelites, the nation of Israel, the people he brought out of the land of Egypt. Even though they were stiff-necked, rebellious, and disobedient to God, he loved them so great that he's just telling the Lord, Forgive them, but if not, then blot me out. I'll take their place. Be like having a child, we'll just say, that's guilty of some crime and has to go to prison for 10 years. And you say, Judge, let me go in his place. Who wants to go to prison for 10 years? Nobody does. You wouldn't want to go to prison for 10 years, but for your love for that child, you're saying, I'll take his place. I'll go into prison for 10 years. Just let him go free. You see that? In Isaiah chapter 53, you read this expression that Jesus Christ was cut off from the land of the living. It's talking about his death. Moses, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ here, is saying, Lord, cut me off out of the land of the living. I'll take their place. I'll, I'll take whatever the judgment will be. That's what he's talking about. He said, blot me out of thy book, which thou has written. Here's a book he has written. He said, just, just blot me out. The blessings that would come upon them in their obedience just blot me out of it. I'll take the curses. You forgive them and give them the blessings. I hope you understand what I'm saying here. Okay. Now, keeping that in mind, I'm going to just give you a few verses concerning eternal security that cannot be misunderstood. In John chapter 10, the Lord Jesus Christ said, I am the good shepherd of the sheep. I know my sheep. I hear, they hear my voice and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And no man can pluck them out of my hand. And my Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man can pluck them out of my Father's hand. I am the Father of one. That's as plain as the nose on your face. In John chapter 6, verses 37 through 39, the Lord said, All the Father giveth me shall come to me. And he had come to me, I in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven, not to do mine will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will, that all he hath given me, I should lose nothing. But raise up again at the last day. You've got to have help to misunderstand that. In John chapter 17, in high priesthood prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, Father, the hour has come, glorify thy Son, he might also glorify thee. As thou hast given him the power of all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. That's eternal security. Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? Shall trials and tribulations, nakedness, pearls, and sword do that? He said, Nay, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life or hype nor death. For any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's eternal security. In the opening verses of Jude's letter, he says, he preaches that, that he, you are the foreknown of God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ and called. What in Jesus Christ? Preserved in Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 Paul says, and I pray to the God of peace that your whole body, soul, and spirit be preserved blameless until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's eternal security. I'm telling you, all whom Christ died for will be in glory one day, not one to be left behind. All whom Christ took the place of on Calvary's cross have been delivered from the penalty of sin. He took their place on Calvary, shed his blood for them, paid their sin debt, put their sins away as far as the east is from the west, and nothing, my friends, in heaven or hell can separate you from that great love and take you out of the hand of Christ. 
When Moses says, Lord, block me out of that book, he's not talking about the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. My time is swiftly moving. I want to take a look at another little book right quick. It's found over here in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 2. The last four verses of Ezekiel, chapter 2. The first three verses, Ezekiel, chapter 3. And you're going to find where Ezekiel is a prophet at this time. And he is trying to minister in the Lord's name to a rebellious people. And the Lord says, you declare my words unto them, for they are rebellious people. And he says, you take the book and you eat this book. He's going to give a book here to Ezekiel. And out of this book are going to be prophetic statements to Israel. He's you to take this book, you're to eat this book. Not literally, but he was to see the book, eat the book know the contents of the book, and from that he would declare a message to Israel that God had given unto him. And notice he said, it would be like sweetness of honey in thy mouth. He said, but in thy belly it shall be lamentations, mournings, and woe. This book is not a book of all comfort. This book has been said before, will comfort the afflicted, but it will afflict the comfortable. Now come over here to the book of Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. And you're going to have a mighty angel comes down from heaven. And he has a rainbow above his head. He's clothed with the clouds. His feet are like uh, 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 burning brass. And his face is like the sun that shineth. All those things I just mentioned to you here are characteristics of a glorified Christ you find in Revelation chapter 1. He's called a mighty angel. He comes down from heaven. He puts one foot on the sea and one foot on the earth. He declares, declares that time shall be no more. Okay, but there's a little book in the hand of him that sits on the throne. It's called a little book. In the latter part of this chapter, he's told to take that little book out of the hand of him that sits upon the throne, and he's to do the same thing Ezekiel did. He's to eat that book. It'll be sweetness in his mouth and bitterness in his belly. He said, because you shall have proclaimed these things that shall come to pass upon these people. It's a little book of prophecy. You see that? All right, let's go to Revelation chapter 5. And in this chapter here, it opens up by one sitting upon a throne and a book is in his hand. And John begins to weep. Here's more tears. John begins to weep because no man is found worthy to loose the seals of this book. This book has seven seals to it. And no man is found worthy to loose the seals of this book. No man is found worthy in heaven or earth or beneath the earth. That is, no man apart from Christ. Nobody in the realm of humanity. But an angel comes to John and says, Weep not, John, for the line of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed to loose the seals of the book. And I looked. He says, I saw a lamb as it hadn't been slain standing. Now notice this. Here's a lamb spelled with a capital L. This lamb had been slain. Yes, Christ died and was buried for three days and three nights, but now he's standing showing he's resurrected. Now I saw a lamb as it had been slain. The line of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed to loose the seals of the book. Here's the lamb that had been slain. The lamb is standing. And then they all begin to cry and say, Thou art worthy, O lamb, to loose the seals of the book. Now I want you to notice this beginning in verse 9. For thou art worthy, O Lamb, to loose the seals of the book, for thou hast redeemed us by thy blood out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, and hast made us kings and priests unto God. When you begin to study these verses here, you see this is a song. It's a new song. It's a song of worship. It's a gospel song. <laughs> it's an evangelistic song. It's a song of praise. And they sang it. The four and twenty elders of four beasts sang that because I was wanted for us found worthy to loose the seals of this book. This book here is a book of prophecy that's contained within the book of Revelation. The next chapter, chapter 6, you'll find where six of those seals are opened. Go read it. He opened the first seal, the second seal, the fourth, fifth, sixth seal. And then it jumps to chapter 8 when you have the seventh seal that's been opened. And each time a seal is opened, there are prophetic statements that are recorded here and declared. It's not the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But God's the author of this book. Well, let's take a look at that in Revelation 13, 8. In Revelation chapter 13, you're going to find a beast comes to our attention. He's going to have seven heads, ten eyes, and ten horns. In contrast, by the way, I almost missed this. 
Back in Revelation chapter 5, this lamb, he knew it was something else. <laughs> this lamb he saw slain, standing. It said he had seven heads. He, I mean, he's got seven, uh, he's got seven uh, horns, uh, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. In the Bible, horns are symbolic of power. Eyes here symbolize uh, vision. And of course, the seven spirits, it says, that shall be upon the face of this earth. All this is pointing through to the three great attributes of God, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, and his omniscience. The seven horns symbolizing power, his omnipotence. The seven eyes here symbolizing God sees everything, knows everything. That's his uh, omniscience. And what, which are the seven spirits of God, which shall cover the earth, that shows his omnipresence. But over here in Revelation chapter 13, there's a beast that's referred to as a leopard and a lion and a great beast. He's got seven heads, ten horns, ten, ten crowns, and he makes war with the saints. And he says, everybody on this earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Did you notice a difference here? There's a book of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world whose names are written in there, and they shall not worship this beast like all do whose names are not in this book. What did the Lord tell those 70 in Luke chapter 10? He gave him a commission to go out and to preach and to heal and cast out unclean spirits and devils. And they did, and they came back rejoicing in that. And the Lord said, don't rejoice in that fact, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. There's a book of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So why is it mentioned that way? It's also referred to in Revelation 17, 8. Why is it referred to in that way? Here's the book of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world that's got names written in it. When were the names written in it? Before time ever began. Who wrote the names in there? God wrote the names in there. Have the names ever changed? They have not. There are some people who are taught and believe that your name can be in there today and not be in there tomorrow. I'm telling you, God did not write it with invisible ink or with a pencil with an eraser on it. God wrote those names in there permanently. They've been there since before time ever began. There's never been a day when that name changed, that name was dropped out, that name was re-added to that book. This is the book of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So what does that mean? That means Christ who died 4,000 years after creation and 2,000 years ago, the impact of his death, the effectiveness of his death, Took my friends reached all the way back to the first heir, and that would be Adam in the Garden of Eden. And reached all the way forward to the last heir of promise ever born in this world. The blood of Christ has covered the sins of all his family, all the elect, from the beginning of time to the end of time. That's why he's a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I hope you, I hope you got that, because I think it's, it's so important. Do I need to say it again? Okay, I know it's after 12, so I won't say it again. Now I, can, I conclude from Revelation chapter 20, down verse 12. And John says, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. This is a pretty serious scene right here, isn't it? It's a pretty serious scene. Depending on your theology, it can get real serious. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the sea gave up the dead. And death and hell gave up the dead. And they were judged according to their works. The books were opened, plural. And they were judged out of those books according to their works. Books of judgment. And a book was opened, singular. He says, in death and hell gave up the dead... And he says, they were all cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. According to their works, I emphasize again, according to their works, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life slain from the foundation of the world, you don't have to worry about the second death. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. These are dead in trespasses and in sins. 
They have died. They shall stand before God. They'll be judged according to their works, and they're going to be found guilty. But the Lord's people, they were judged on Calvary 2,000 years ago in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now you are declared not guilty as God sees you through the blood of his Son. God sees you through the life of his Son. He sees you through the blood of his Son. And therefore, he says, not guilty. That's gospel information. That's gospel news. That's good news. Glad tidings from a far country, isn't it? If you understand what I just said here, you would leave this church today two foot off the ground. You would leave this church today with hallelujah in your heart and praise coming from your lips to know that by nature, my friends, you're separated from God and you're sold in the sin. It took the mighty power of God, the blood of Christ, uh, to change all that. It took the life of Christ, the sacrifice of life of Christ, uh, the offering of Christ, the perfect life of Christ. It took the shed blood of Christ to change all of that. And I'm telling you, my friends, it was changed, and God sees you now free. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. When I think of the knowledge that God has given concerning this, and I think of how little I praise my Lord, it makes me ashamed here this morning. God has many books. I hope I got that across here this morning, okay? And this precious book right here tells you about all the many books, and it tells you about the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Precious book, right? Your name. Somebody says, is it your name, Ronald? Is it your name? I don't know what the name is there. I don't know if my name. All I know is God gave me a name. And God gave me a name and wrote that name in a book called The Book of Life of the Lamb Slain from the Foundation of the World. If God put it in there, my friends, it's been there ever since. It'll always be there. And I'm on the register as a citizen of heaven's pure world. Amen.